Well, good morning, Fellowship Favor. Welcome. Glad you're here this morning. My name is David. I'm, I'm one of the leaders here. And by a show of hands real quick, I need to see how many of you have enjoyed this John series that we've been doing. Yeah, it's been awesome. If you're new with us this morning, that's, you just, I just gave it away where we've been the last couple weeks and where we're headed today, continuing in the book of John. Hey, so the book of John, the, the, re, the pe- people that it was written to, um, surely whenever they started the book, they would have immediately, their minds would have gone to Genesis chapter 1, passages that they have memorized from, from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible. And we're going to begin this morning by singing through John chapter 1. If you pay attention this morning, the music, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to sing the story, John chapter 1, then we're going to sing a song about who we, God's character is, and we're going to pray that, we would, that his character would lead us in love to other people. And then after we have some ministry highlights, we're going to sing again about what the cross has done for us and how we stand amazed and how he's paid our debt. So the music this morning is going to walk through the book of John a little bit. And so I want to read this over us to begin. This is John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 and 14, and then we're going to sing this story together to point our minds as to why we gather. So this is what it says. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you, Lord. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so if you would, would you stand with us this morning? This is an old, familiar song. We're just going to sing John chapter 1, that the light of the world stepped into darkness, and that's why we gather to sing. So let's sing this together. Light of the world. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with Remind yourself of this. So here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely. All together worthy. All together wonderful to be. King of all days. Of all days, oh, so highly exalted, glorious in heaven. Humbly you came to the earth you created, all for love's sake became born. Here I am to worship, here I am. Yeah. 
Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever sing. He's worthy. He's worthy of every breath we could ever be. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. The holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder to show me who you are. Fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. He's worthy. Sing it together. Worthy.
And Father, you are holy. And there's no one like you. Lord, you are the firm foundation. So Lord, that is why we gather. That's why we're here to worship. Here to worship the light of the world that stepped into darkness to set us free. So God, we look to you this morning. Would you teach us from your word? So we continue to sing. Let our affections be stirred for you. In your name I pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. Amen. Hey, welcome, fellowship. Good man. So much excitement in this room. Yes. Hey, how many of y'all ready for summer? Yeah. That's what I felt when I walked outside this morning. I was like, summer is here. Hey, here at Fellowship, we're always trying to do a better job of communicating with you. And so we're trying to update our database. And uh, so if you're part of our database, uh, we want to be able to communicate with you better, sending out better emails. And so we actually have an instructional video uh, for you. Uh, and we were going to play it this morning, but it is so well done that, and so exciting that we didn't think that you'd be able to focus on the rest of the service if you watch the video here and now. So what we want you to do is take out your phone, uh, scan this QR code, and it will guide you to the video, which will guide you how to update uh, your information on our website or within our database and, uh, called The Rock, and it'll be able to communicate with you better. So don't watch it now, but please just scan it uh, so you can watch it later. I'm not going to spoil it for you, for you, but this has actually been nominated for a few Oscars. Uh, after the credits roll, there is a special cutscene at the end of it, uh, so just wait till the very end. But hey, we want to welcome you uh, to Fellowship. Also, I wanted to let you know that we have our uh, fourth Friday men's Bible study coming up this Friday. It's going to be here um, at Fellowship Fayetteville. It's at 6 a.m., and 12 a.m., so uh, love to invite the men to come and be, uh, be a part of that. 12 p.m., that's 12 a.m. At midnight, show up for a special service. <laughs> Michael will be here. Uh, oh, sorry, 6.30. I'm really good at this with the uh, information there. Um, 6.30 uh, and then 12 p.m. Uh, lunchtime, be here. Hey, earlier this week, uh, I was actually meeting with a, a good friend of mine who's on an advisory board uh, for an orphanage in, in Uganda, and he, he told me something. Um, you know, they're, they're now ministering to 300 orphans, but their goal is, uh, what do we do about the 2.5 million orphans uh, in our country? And he said this, and I thought it was, it was so good. He said, you know, we have a saying where we're at that discipleship actually begins many times with handing somebody a bag of rice. And what he was talking about was, man, before you can open up the door for the gospel to be heard and received, sometimes you just have to come along and do something to serve somebody in a practical way. And uh, I was thinking about it, even, even yesterday, I was driving, driving home one of our international students from Iran, and I was asking him about, you know, hey, when you graduate, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay here in the States, or do you want to move back to Iran? And he actually said, he goes, he goes man, not only do I want to stay in the States, he goes, I want to stay in Fayetteville, Arkansas. He goes, because God has blessed me and surrounded me with so many good people. He goes, matter of fact, when I first arrived, there's a ministry called Furniture Friends that we've talked about uh, before he goes, they just showed up and just gave me furniture. And then since then, God just continues to surround me with great people. So I want to stay here. And John 13 actually opens up. I think it, Jesus is, opens up into the most important conversation he's going to have with his disciples. But he, what is he doing first? He's washing their feet. He's serving them in a practical way. And he's saying, after that, he says, he goes, I've given you an example that you should follow. And so we're always looking for practical ways of, of how can we serve. And there's a ministry um, that not only us, but multiple churches in Northwest Arkansas uh, have connected with. And, and what we wanna do is uh, we wanna pack meals. The goal is to fill an entire shipping crate 
285,000 meals is the goal. Uh, and somebody's already paid for it. Uh, the materials are there. We're not asking for any money. All we're asking uh, is for people to show up and to give two hours of their time um, to help pack these meals that we can ship them, ship them over to Ukraine um, and, and really help out the refugees. And, and the goal is to see, would this open up the door uh, for the gospel to be shared? So it's a great thing. It's an incredible thing to take your family to. It's an incredible thing for community groups uh, to rally around. It's an incredible thing, I think, for cell groups, for FSM to be involved with. And so I just encourage you, uh, let me make sure I get the date right. Made a couple of mistakes. Oh, it's not up there. It's June 4th, uh, by the way. Uh, June 4th, but we'd just love to plack, uh, pack that place, um, Fayetteville Boys and Girls Club, um, with people from fellowship, and just be able to begin discipleship with just handing somebody a very practical way uh, to minister to them. Hey, let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much. Um, dear God, I just know this body. I know this people, part of this church family, dear Lord, that um, just love to serve people in practical ways. And God, maybe we never just get away from that simple message, dear God, of you washing the disciples' feet and saying, I've just given you an example for you to follow. That God, if we want to open up the door of evangelism of the gospel into people's hearts, so many times we just need to begin with serving them in a practical way. And God, we pray for the situations that are going on in this world, and we ask that you would intercede in a powerful way. And God, we pray that even this tragedy that's so meant for evil, dear God, that people are doing incredibly despicable things, that you could turn it for good, dear God, and people would come into the kingdom, and people would be crying out to you. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we continue to sing to our king who laid down his life to set us free? Let's sing this together, I stand amazed.
the Savior said, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Let's sing it together. Jesus paid it all, so all to him I owe. sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white. Oh, now indeed. Jesus, may we not forget even right now what it is you have done for us and on our behalf in giving us new life, giving us hope, in your victory over sin and death on the cross and the celebration of that in your resurrection. 
Would you retune our eyes to see it even right now this morning? We call on you as our King, as our Lord, as our God. So Jesus, we're here for you this morning. Would your spirit unlock ancient scriptures that they might be fresh to us. We ask it in your name, Jesus, our King. Amen. Y'all, please grab a seat. How are we? Doing all right? Um, I'm Garland, by the way. Um, so it, when I ask that question to most people in life, like, like my friends, like not in a setting like this, but across the table, like in my living room or something like that, when I ask like, how are we? Here's probably the number one answer that I'm getting right now. It goes something like this. How you doing? Or, or how are you? Here's the number one answer. I'm tired. Or on the backside of that, usually it's I'm just really busy. I'm tired. There's a lot going on. Man, I'm tired. We got this on the weekend. We got this with the kids. We got this at work. I'm tired. So here's what that means. What that means is, just a second ago, I asked, how are we? And most of you lied. Like a huge percentage of you lied when I asked you that. Like, I get it. Like, some of you, you got up this morning, and if you got kids, like, just getting them ready and brush their teeth and clothes on and fighting your way here and getting in the parking lot, getting them checked in, you saw the coffee, you're like, get me some coffee, get me in, let's get this over with so I can go relax and watch some golf. Like, I get it. For many of us, we're just kind of tired. How'd you sleep last night? Sleep well? You know, doctors say we need how many hours of sleep? Eight, right? Are we crushing that eight hours? We feeling good? Yeah, no. It's been a long time since we got that full eight hours. I mean, just think, of, look at the sheer volume of medications that are on the market just to help us sleep just to help us fall asleep. By the way, that's just in the pharmacy. That doesn't include the bottle of wine or the bottle of bourbon that you need to try to relax and unwind. I know for many of us in this room, when we see this commercial come on, we're like, just get me there. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Just I'm looking for the next vacation. I want this deal to be done at work so I can finally relax. And yet for many of us, this idea of having like rest, finding some kind of peace, it just seems like an illusion, like it's way far off for us. And the daily grind of just all the stuff going on, the busyness, and it can be so exhausting, we just want a breath. And for so many of us, we're living for the next weekend or the next big vacation or when our kids will be home for the summer or back in school when summer's over or graduate. And what we're gonna see the Bible speak to us about the Bible's gonna mention this over and over and over again as a kind of rest that's deep, like a kind of true rest for your soul and for my soul, a kind of a peace that can persist even in the busyness and even when the circumstances go haywire in life. It's a true rest for our souls, and it can be yours, and it can be mine this morning. Here's where we're gonna go as we continue in our series uh, we're gonna first do a little bit of an offshoot. We're gonna deal with some doubts. We're just gonna do a little detour and we're gonna deal with a couple problems in our passage. And then we're gonna talk about the nature of our restlessness. Why are we so restless? And then we're gonna see the nature of the Sabbath that Jesus is talking about in our passage. And finally, there's gonna be some surprising implications of what we're gonna unearth in John chapter five. We got four points that normally I give you three, but today's my birthday. So I get a fourth one, all right? It's for me today, all right? You get one extra one I don't know why you're clapping. I guess it's my birthday. Okay, great. I, I, I don't know how to take that. I'm weird about that kind of thing. All right, here we go. If you got your Bibles, go to John chapter five. Let's take a look at it. John five. There's two problems in our passage. One will be really obvious, and one I'll have to unearth for you. John chapter five. We're gonna pick it up in verse one and two. Now, I'm, I'm just, I'm calling this first little thing. We gotta deal with a handful of doubts here. There's two problems in our passage that might surface some issues. And can I just say to you, and say to myself, some of you, you come into this place or you've been following Jesus for a long time and man, you just don't have that many doubts. Like you, you, you believe it, you buy it, you, you did maybe from an early age, you says your grandparents taught you about it, you're like, yeah, I'm in, or a pastor, and you just said, I get it, I'm with you. But for many of you in the room, you've got some serious question marks about the Bible, the church, Christianity, 
what it says, how we understand it. And can I just, can I just tell you that is okay? Like, that's okay. In fact, I would love to fan the flame for you to press into those doubts. Don't run away from the church. Don't run away from Christianity because you have them. In fact, press into them. I have them. Most, most people in this room have them, if we're being honest. Now, there's two problems in this passage that you might not have noticed. One you'll definitely notice, I think. The other one you may not. Here, here's the first problem. Look here at verse two. We're told that there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, John records for us, there's a pool, which is called the Pool of Bethesda, and it's surrounded by five covered colonnades, okay? Some of you are like, okay, I don't think I get it. All right, here, here's, the, here's the issue. There is no other literary record that we found in written sources that mention this pool, except for John, right here. And for centuries, it was absent from the archeological record. It led many skeptical scholars to go, you see, here's the Bible again, getting a historical thing wrong. Yet another inaccuracy. John says there's a pool by the Sheep Gate that's got apparently five sides, which who's looking for a Pentagon, a Pentagon-shaped Greek kind of an idea in the middle of Jerusalem, it's so unlikely. How can we possibly trust this? Archaeology hasn't said anything about this pool. There's no other record of it. In the written sources about this pool. And for centuries, skeptical scholars, they looked at a passage like this and said, see, you just can't trust the Bible. And maybe you're here this morning. That's a, that's a doubt that you've had. You look at some of the things the Bible says, says and you go, I don't know if I can buy that historically. Now, that objection persisted until 1964. And not all of these objections are as easily answered as this one, but in 1964, buried deep beneath a Byzantine church, which was built on top of another church, built on top of another thing. By the way, all of this archaeology is dozens of feet below ground level. They found it, the Pool of Bethesda, exactly where John had said it was gonna be. Against all odds, there it was. And here's as they've done the work to try to understand what this pool looked like as they've dug down into the dirt, what they found is it was enormous, it was about 100 yards long, so football field in length. But notice, remember John said it has five covered colonnades. And, and, and skeptical scholars went, we're not a pentagon, really? That's such a Greek idea. Do you see the five colonnades? The four of the sides of the rectangle and then the one right down the middle dividing the two pools. Exactly where John said it was, exactly how John said it would be found. The story, it reads like an eyewitness Account. This leads Norm Geisler, who's a conservative scholar, to say this. Because archaeology has confirmed not dozens, but hundreds and hundreds of details from the biblical record account of the early church. Small details like the wind and depth of water and diseases certain islands had. We found record of it again and again and again. Not every question's answered. I mean, by the nature of archaeology, not every question may ever be answered. But if you've got that doubt, I just can't trust the Bible historically, I, I, I hear that. But I'm gonna ask you to press in. You're gonna to have to do some homework. Don't dismiss offhand the story of Scripture because you watched a YouTube video and it said you can't trust it. You have to press in a little more than that. Second objection. Let's see it right here. I'm gonna read it. I want you to tell me what the problem is. John 5, 3 to 5. We're told here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. What's the problem? You see it? What's the problem? Look at your own printed Bible if you have one. You might see it there. What's the problem? I need interaction here. What's the problem? Where's verse four? Did you notice that? Some of you are like, I don't care. Move on. Where's verse four? Now, this is a significant issue here. Now, look at your printed Bible. Different editors, different translators will do different things. Some of your Bibles have put left the verse printed but put brackets around it. Some of them have taken it out and moved it down to a footnote. But almost certainly, I would bet every single person's Bible here is doing something with verse four to note that for you. Now, here's the objection that I hear. There's so much difference in the manuscripts. I mean, there's what, what scholars call textual variance. That's where different manuscripts say different things. And the Bible's been translated over and over again. How can we trust what's in this thing, really? To have any sort of confidence in what we have before us. Maybe you've had that objection. Maybe you're in here today with that objection. Now, can I, can I respond just real briefly? This is an ancient manuscript of John's gospel. 
And, and let me acknowledge, you're right. On almost every verse of the Bible, there are textual variants, almost every verse. If you really wanna see it, come find me afterwards. I'll show you on my computer all of them, okay? There are textual variants in nearly every verse of the Bible, places where the manuscripts differ. Now hear me, don't freak out. In like 98% of those cases, those are things that are really simple and easy to explain. Word order difference. It's like the Lord Jesus Christ versus Christ Jesus the Lord. Some of them are just misspellings. You can literally see the scribe missed the you here. So 98% of the cases are things like that. That leaves 2% though that might, we might say have some weight to them. Can I help? Can I tell you? Every single time it's something of some substance like that, your editors are marking that for you. They're not trying to, to, to pull the wool over your eyes and sneak something by you. They're gonna mark that for you. The people that do this work, they do so with integrity, with fidelity. They're not blind idiots just trying to give us a conservative text. If you're here this morning, you still got some questions about how we got the Bible. What do we do with all this evidence, these manuscripts? Welcome. I still got questions about it. I love digging into this stuff, but you're gonna have to do your homework. You can't just dismiss out hand the scripture because you say, well, it's been translated. We can have more reliability in the text before us in the scriptures than any other ancient text. You're gonna have to lean in and do some homework. Those are our two objections, and I get it. We're not gonna, we can't address every doubt up here, but if that's you, please find somebody, whether you're a Jesus follower, by the way, or you're not. Find somebody and say, I wanna wrestle through this. I need to talk this out. I hope that they can, they can help you. If they can't, then have them point you to somebody on our staff. We'd love to come alongside you in your journey. Now, that was a total detour. Now, we started here, tired, restless. And what I'd like to do is what we're gonna learn from our passage is we're gonna, we're gonna get an interesting insight into the nature of our restlessness. Why are we so tired? Why are we so anxious? I mean, the simple reality is most of us, most people in this nation live better lives than most humans in the history of the world. And yet we're so anxious. Why? Let's take a look at it. Let's see the passage. Now, John 5, 3 to 6. We see a great crowd assembled at this pool of Bethesda. It's just, this is a, one of the festivals of Jerusalem. Uh, in Jerusalem, it's probably there's extra people in town. And some have been brought to this pool, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And this is a collection of people that nobody wants to be around. Like in the ancient world, many of these people would be ceremonially unclean. We're gonna see in, in, later on in the passage that there's a supernatural belief with this pool, so the Orthodox Jews almost certainly don't go near this place. I mean, this is a collection of people you wanna walk around. And one of these people has been lying, has been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know how long they've come to this pool, we don't know who's bringing them to this pool, but 38 years. I mean, imagine after year five, maybe this is gonna get better. After year 12, surely hope was around the corner. After year 20, after year 36. I mean, at what point do you give up? At what point do you just reach despair? When did he go through his anger season? And Jesus walks not around this pool, but he goes in it, and he sees this man. And it says he learns about his condition. He asks, tell me about this guy. And it's so like Jesus. The chapter before, he does the same thing with a woman at a well. He goes up to him, and he looks at him, shows him dignity and respect, and says, do you want to get well? Do you want rest? Do you want to get well? Now, look at the man's response. This is really telling. It's gonna give us insight into our restlessness. Look at his response. Sir, Lord, I'm not exactly sure who you are or what your whole thing's about, but are you here to get me in the pool? Are you fast? Because I need somebody to get me in this pool. Because when the water stirs, we think that maybe an angel comes and will heal me. If that's what you're here to do, then you can help pick me up and carry me in, then help me. Otherwise, can he, can he kind of move out of the way? Because I got my eyes on the pool. When I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes in front of me and they get healed and I don't, help me. 
But Jesus will not grant his request. Jesus is wholly uninterested about getting this man in this pool. And I think it gives us an interesting and profound observation about Jesus. Here it is. Jesus will never allow himself to be taken as simply a means to an end. He must be the end. It's actually a simple idea, isn't it? pretty simple. I think we understand it relationally. This is Sarah and our family. We had our anniversary uh, 13 years last Sunday, last Sunday, um, and we're happy about that. Uh, but think about it with relationships. This, this is uh, my primary relationship with Sarah, my earthly relationship. And some of you, 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 can, you can think back to dating. Some of you are dating right now, or whether, you've been, whether you're dating, you've been married three years or 30 years, this remains true. Think about it. In a relationship, the other person must be the primary goal. They cannot be used as a means to some kind of other ends or it will always destroy the relationship. Think about it. If you're dating somebody in here and you say, I'm coming to you so that you will take away my loneliness or I'm coming to you because it'll make me look like a well-adjusted adult and I'll get promotions at the office or I'm coming to you because then I can meet my financial or my sexual goals in life and I need somebody else to help me meet those. All of those If that becomes your aim, then the relationship will always be destroyed in the process because what's being exposed is what you're really after is not the person. They're a means to an end. What you're really after is the financial security or looking responsible or not being lonely anymore. And as a result, that will become your primary. That becomes the main motivation. It will destroy the relationship. It will end up eating the relationship alive. And Jesus knows this. We know it innately And Jesus knows this with him. He goes to the man and says, do you wanna get well? And his response is, yeah, get me in the pool. Put me in the pool. That's where my health will come from. That's where my joy will come from. That's where my security will come from. Get me in the pool. And Jesus will do no such thing. Hear me. If you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm gonna come to you so that you can give me job security. Or I'm gonna come to you so that my kids will have a healthy life where nothing bad happens to them. Or Jesus, I'm gonna come to you so that I can look respectable and have networking opportunities. Or Jesus, I'm gonna come to you so that you can give me the American dream and I'll have financial security and health and wealth. That's why I'm coming to you. If you do that, Jesus will he'll be wholly uninterested in getting you in that pool. To lie next to the pool of financial security, kids' success, how your body looks, your reputation even, to lie next to the pool of your 401k amount, to lie next to those pools and say, if I could just get that, then I'll be well. Jesus will do no such thing. He will not allow that. He must be the primary ends. Here's why. Because he knows that ultimately, you will never find the healing and the joy and the hope and the security you're seeking in that pool. 1,400 years ago, St. Augustine said it this way. And I think his words are true. You need to hear him. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Have you realized that? What is that that pool that you are laying next to? And say, Jesus, I'll come to you, but you better get me that. Or I'll come to you, but really, that's what my hope is in. Have you come to realize yet? That's why you're anxious. That's why you're restless. That's why you can't sleep. You're asking a person or a number on a paycheck or a title or a number on the scale to give you your security, and it's never meant to, and it's eating you alive. It's the nature of our restlessness. Now, into this scene, Jesus will walk, and he's gonna gonna do something interesting. Notice, he's wholly uninterested with getting this man in the pool, but instead he says, look at me, look at me, me. I hear it. Get up, he 
take your mat and walk out of here. And he does. Get up, take your mat, be free. 38 years, and immediately he was cured. Now, I'm frustrated with John here, all right? I'm a little mad. Look at verse 9. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. I'm like, give me more. Like, what, was there a party? What happened? Like, what did the man say? What did Jesus say? What did the friends say? Like, John gives me no details. I'm like, John, get in the mood for details here, man. Give me something else. But instead he says this. Hey, you know what day it was? It was a Sabbath day. And we're all like, I don't care. Who cares what day it was on? Tell me the psychology of this man. Tell me what happened. No, 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 hold on. It was a Friday. Don't forget, it's a Sabbath. Now, John is being really intentional here. He wants you and I as the reader to connect this story to something much bigger than just this story. He wants to connect it to this thing called the Sabbath. In fact, he introduced the story back in verse one. He tells us, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he says, now it was one of the Jewish festivals. In chapter six, he's gonna tell us exactly what festival it is. In chapter seven, exactly what festival it is. In chapter 10, exactly what festival it is. John is always interested in giving us a festival except for here, and he leaves it intentionally ambiguous. Scholars debate, which festival is this? And I think that's missing John's point. He doesn't want us to connect this to one of the Jewish festivals. He wants us to connect it to the Sabbath. In fact, later on in the story, this is gonna be the reason the Jewish leaders get frustrated is because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. I am speaking to, I'm certain, almost all Gentiles, non-Jews. We have to do a little work here. What's the deal with the Sabbath? Why is this a big deal? Why is he doing this? John short-circuits the story to go give us a Sabbath note. So why? Why does he want to connect us to the Sabbath? Now, to, to understand that, we gotta, we got to get a, a picture of what this Sabbath is all about. we got to go all the way back to the beginning. You don't have to turn there, but just see it. This is the worst chapter break in all of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 should go all the way through 2-3, and then chapter 2 should start at 2-4, because 2-1-3 is really the, the conclusion of the story of creation in Genesis 1, but I digress. Genesis 2, 1-3. We're told, thus, the heavens and the earth were completed. God has created this universe for his glory and for our joy. In the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and on that day, we're told he rested. He's created the universe, and now he comes to settle in, to abide, to rest in the creation that he's made. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. He's made this world for his glory and our joy, and then he's come to dwell in the creation that he's made. Here's what it's not. I mean, for many of us, we see Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and we go, okay, okay, God was tired. We get tired. He needed a nap, so we take a nap. He needs some rest, so we take a rest. And when we do that, I think we wholly miss the idea. So let's let John Walton help us. He's an Old Testament scholar up at Wheaton College, one of the uh, preeminent ones in the world. Conservative scholar says this. Because one of the things that we don't get Because when we think of rest, we think of disengagement. We think of relaxation. We think of the Corona commercial. Just get me away. But instead, when God's in the ancient world, or in this case, the God of the Bible, that when they rest, they rest in a temple space. And it's not disengagement, it's engagement. It's not relaxation, it's ruling. That is essential to understanding the Genesis text. This is about God's rule, God's engagement. What Genesis is teaching us is that God comes to settle into what he's made and then rule it alongside humanity. That's the picture in Genesis 2. God bringing order and goodness to the world that he's made. And we make it one more chapter before humans mess it up. And the Jews then were called to reflect once a week on God's good order in this world, to reorient themselves to God's rule. That's what the Sabbath was about. And as the Jews understood this, 
as the millennia goes on, the Jewish rabbis began to teach, okay, we take a break on the Sabbath. We are not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. They put all sorts of rules around it. But there is one who can work on the Sabbath. Who is it? It's God. Because the Sabbath is about God coming to bring his order, his goodness, his creation, his created goodness into the world. And even on the Sabbath day, babies are born, crops grow, the universe still holds. So God must be at work even on the Sabbath. That's how the rabbis reasoned it. Now, look at the controversy that erupts over Jesus and what he's done on this day. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. They said, you can't do this on the Sabbath. Only God works on the Sabbath. Look at Jesus' defense. Because my father, you know, our, our God, the creator, the sustainer, the king, he's always at his work to this very day. And by the way, and I too am working. By the way, the Jews get it. They go to Jesus. You can see them frustrated. Jesus, you can't, you can't work on this day. Only God works on this day. We've settled that hundreds of years ago. Only God can break the Sabbath. He's the creator. He's the king. Only God works on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? Jesus goes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Only God can work on the Sabbath. Only, only the creator and the king can work on the Sabbath. And man, they get it. Look at verse 18. They get what he's saying. It's a dramatic claim that Jesus is making. He's saying, I am the creator and the king coming to bring the goodness and the blessing and the justice of his order into this world. That's it. This is, that's what I'm doing here. But look at what happens. What does it look like? You have to wrestle with this. What does it look like for the creator, king of the universe, to step into this world? Where does he go? Not to Rome, not up to Jerusalem where all the put-together religious leaders are. He goes down to this pool. He finds these broken people. Are you serious? When the creator steps into this world, we said it earlier, we read it earlier, when the word becomes flesh and dwells with us, where does he go? He goes to the pool of Bethesda and brings healing and life and restoration and hope here? It's a, it's a surprise for us. God's Sabbath rest coming, the touch of the creator coming to those that are broken and weary, and that leads us to our surprising implications. If this is the Sabbath rest of God coming into the world, I want you to notice two types of characters in our, in our story. You got the crippled dude, 38 years. I mean, this guy is, I don't know how many times he's probably come to the end of his rope. I don't know how many doctors or medicine men or healers he's tried before. Imagine his desperation. I mean, he knows, man, I can't even get in the pool to get healed. I got nothing here. And notice, he doesn't seek Jesus out. When Jesus walks by, he doesn't go, son of David, have mercy on me. No, he's just lying there in desperation. And yet he experiences the healing touch of Jesus. He experiences the Sabbath rest. Even after the story, we're not sure about this guy. But this guy experiences the Sabbath rest. Notice the second character, second kind of character the religious leaders of Israel. They've built their status, their connection with God on their ability to perform the law, on their ability to live up to a, a set of standards. They've built their status on it. That's their claim. That's their identity. Look at what we have accomplished. This will bring God down. And yet they end the story far from Jesus in opposition to him. The desperate has come to the end of his rope, eye to eye with Jesus. The religious leaders are wagging their finger at him saying, get out. Which one are you? Which one are you? Uh, Walton, again, he says this. The Sabbath is most truly honored when we participate in the work of God. 
Yet the Jews were also called to desist from their work that day. But what's the work that we are now called to desist from? The work we desist from is that which represents our own attempts to bring our own order to our lives. It is to resist, hear this, our self-interest, our self-sufficiency, and our sense of self-reliance. The, 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 the crippled man, the only self-interest he's got left is, I just need help. I mean, self-sufficiency out the window. Somebody's pick me up and carry me. Self-reliance, all gone. And he experiences the rest of God. The religious leaders, chest out, we've got this. We're gonna bring Yahweh down on our terms. We can obey. Our status is on our performance. You can see their bitterness and anger begin to well up in John's gospel, and they end this story separate from Jesus. So which are you? Which are you? Have you come to the end of your self-interest, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance, and said, I got nothing here. Jesus, I just need you to help me. And hey, by the way, this isn't just for non-believers in the room. This is true for me every day as it, true, as, as it is true for you if you don't know Jesus in the room. In my life this last week, uh, Tuesday night, I hit a wall. Uh, one, of our, one of our kids, I just, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what to do. I just, the way, his behavior, and we had some issues, and I, I was on the couch with Sarah, we were just talking, and I was just venting. And I was like, babe, I don't know what to do here. I am so frustrated. I'm so mad. We've tried everything. We've tried being really stern and strict. We've tried being really gracious and compassionate. We've done everything we feel like we know to do. And I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere. And I was really frustrated. I went to bed really frustrated. I got up on Wednesday. And in between meetings here, I was talking to Clark down here. And I was just sort of venting about it and talking to Clark about it. And a couple hours later, and he was listening. A couple hours later, he came by and he handed me a a piece of paper that was a, a half sheet with verses on both sides. And he said, man, I remember when I hit that wall with our kids at that age. And he said, uh, I just started praying this every day and I, for me, and I saw it make a change in my soul and it began to change the spirit of our house. I don't know what else to tell you. And I was like, all right, I'll, I, I don't know. So I took it and after our meetings, I drove out to this West Fable over here, parked near a field, got out of my car, just sat there with the verses and just said, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. Have you come to the end of your self-reliance? Have you come to the end of your self-sufficiency? If you have, then you might be ready to find rest and find it in him. So here's how we close. Number one, do you recognize your broken condition? Do you recognize it? Number two, what pool are you laying next to saying, Jesus, help me get in that pool? And have you seen that it's actually the cause of your broken condition? It's why you're so tired? And then number three would be this. Are, are you ready for rest? Hear Jesus' invitation in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, come to me. Not a religion, not a book, not a set of precepts. He says, come to me and follow me. He says, you're weary, burdened, tired, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and Learn from me. You gotta follow me. And to do that, you might have to just read the gospels over and over and over again, learning the way of Jesus. He goes, but I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest from your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Don't you see? He's taken our heaviness, our burden, our exhaustion, all of our attempts to give ourselves security, and they failed. All of our brokenness, our crippledness, he's taken it on himself, literally bore our burden to Calvary that we might get his yoke that is light, the joy. He exchanged our brokenness for his joy. There we find rest. You're weary and burdened, come to him. Come to him now, this morning. You can find a rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when you sent your son into this world to tabernacle among us, to be with us, man, he went to, to the broken places to bring healing and hope and justice. And we need that desperately in our world and in our lives. 
I pray that we would be a people who recognize our own brokenness, who don't use you as a means to some other ends, but have our eyes fixed on you, and who celebrate the freedom and the joy that is found in what you've accomplished for us on the cross. There's our hope. There's our security. There's all that we need in you. For God so loved this world, including broken people like me, that you gave your only son. To that end, we now sing. Jesus, our King, we love you. Amen. Would you stand? And together, let's sing these words. Sing this together. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white. Oh, my sin. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white. He washed it white. He washed it white. Together with our voices, we praise Him again for paying our debt. Over Sometimes, like sometimes we need somebody to help us get there. Um, I needed Clark that day. And if that's you this morning, our prayer room is right through those doors. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, that's what our community groups are for, so we can process life together. If you are interested in what that looks like, right through those doors in the booth, we'd love to process that with you. We love you. Fellowship Fable, have a great week, everybody.